Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. This is a Russiagate story. So if you're tired of Russiagate, if you moved on, totally understand this story is not for you. But if you are still interested, then we have a pretty big exclusive today. And that is an interview that you won't get anywhere else with Konstantin Kalimnik, who really is the last Russian standing when it comes to Russiagate. Because by now, after more than four years, all the many conspiracy theories about Trump and Russia colluding have collapsed. The P-tape, Michael Cohen visiting Prague to meet with Russian hackers, um, Trump and Russia secretly communicating via a uh, server set up by a Russian bank. All these things are done by now. They're dead. But there is an ongoing effort to keep the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory alive by invoking this man, Konstantin Kalimnik, and accusing him of being a Russian spy who secretly passed polling data to Russia from the Trump campaign in 2016. So we're going to hear Konstantin Kalimnik respond to these allegations today in his own words. I've already published an article based on this interview with him that I did at Real Clear Investigations. But here at the Gray Zone, we have the exclusive audio from that interview and we'll hear pieces of that audio. Yeah, here's the problem. I mean, I wish I knew what they were talking about. Uh, I wish they gave at least one example of uh, this kind of activity so that I could at least see where, you know, where they're driving with it. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, I have no relationship whatsoever to any security services being Russian or Ukrainian or American or, um, you know, any of that kind. Uh, I mean, I have worked in politics uh, for most of my life, and uh, um, I, I just have not been approached by anybody uh, with uh, any suggestions to, you know, to work for, um, you know, for any of these kind of services. They needed a fucking Russian. Yeah. I happen to be that fucking Russian. <laughs> so just to recap the story, well, starting with most recently, the... Uh, Trump-Russia conspiracy theory is ostensibly dead, right? But then all of a sudden, in April, the Treasury Department puts out a pretty extraordinary press release where they claim that Kalimnik, who again is a longtime aide to Paul Manafort, the former Trump campaign manager, that he is a Russian spy who in 2016 secretly passed Trump campaign polling data to Russia. And ostensibly that was used or would have been useful for this purported Russian interference campaign where they supposedly were told flooded Americans with uh, their sophisticated propaganda that in reality was juvenile clickbait, as you can see by looking at it, which we've reported on before. So this caused a huge media stir, this one sentence press release from Treasury with people proclaiming that this validated their Trump-Russia conspiracy theories. Here's an example. The Trump campaign chairman gave a Russian intelligence officer the Trump campaign's internal strategy and polling data. That Russian intelligence officer then gave it to his bosses in the Russian intelligence agencies. And that presumably must have been very helpful to the Russian intelligence agencies in their concerted contemporaneous efforts to target their attacks on our election to the maximum benefit of candidate Donald Trump. Uh, the, the chain here is the Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, uh, and his deputy chairman are giving polling data and strategic information about their strategy in the Midwest to Kalimnik, who the deputy chairman acknowledges they knew was a spy or they believed was a spy. Uh, and in fact, as the Treasury Department has acknowledged, was a spy 
uh, and was providing this to Russian intelligence, and not just Russian intelligence, but the same services that are involved in trying to help Trump win in that election. Uh, that's what most people would call collusion. Now, what's amazing about these declarations that this Treasury Department statement about Kalimnik constituted proof of collusion is that there was no evidence with it. Literally, it was one sentence in a Treasury Department press release asserting that Kalimnik gave polling data to Russia, but presenting no evidence. Now, of course, this is the pattern that we saw drive Russiagate from the start. Explosive assertions are made. There's no evidence. That doesn't matter. The entire media and the Democratic Party, especially, especially people like Adam Schiff, just parrot it as true. And when evidence comes along later that undermines it, that evidence gets ignored, as you'll see is the case, a theme continuing here with Kalimnik. Now, this theory about the polling data was actually not new. It was the first time that a U.S. government body had asserted it. But it's been around for a long time, and it's worth recalling how it came to be. So at the end of the Mueller investigation, there had been no indictments for anything to do with Trump, Russia collusion, or even the 2016 election. All these allegations were about outside issues. So process crimes like misremembering dates and the timing of interviews to in interviews with the FBI and several people in the Trump camp got indicted for that. Uh, in the case of Paul Manafort, he was indicted on lobbying and tax fraud charges, but nothing to do with the core issue of Russia and collusion in the 2016 election. So what happened was, although the Mueller team did not formally accuse Konstantin Kalimnik of being a Russian spy or of collusion, what they did is they used the court to suggest it. So what they did was they came out and said that Manafort, who had a plea deal with them, had lied to them. And one of the lies that they alleged Manafort told was that he lied to them about him sharing Trump campaign polling data with Kalimnik, his longtime associate. And Andrew Weissman, who is a uh, Mueller prosecutor, he sparked a huge round of, me of media innuendo when uh, he said to the court this quote he said this goes to the larger view of what we think is going on and what we think is the motive here this goes i think very much to the heart of what the special counsel's office is investigating so even though he wasn't even being specific here it was clear what he was trying to say and the media and political actors got that message because they took this innuendo from weissman in court to mean something about collusion. Mark Warner of the Senate Intelligence Committee even declared this to be the closest thing that we've seen to collusion and speculated that this polling data that Kalimnik allegedly got from Manafort was used to brainwash Americans on social media, including African Americans. So this is an example of the kind of innuendo that Weissman fueled. We'll hear here from Warner along with first Adam Schiff and also James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. What did you think when you read that disclosure from Paul Manafort's own attorneys that he had passed this proprietary polling data to Russians? Well, it's pretty shocking. Uh, and you think you're not uh, capable of being shocked anymore. But of course, uh, we continue to learn things that take your breath away. Uh, so there's clear evidence uh, on the issue of collusion. And this adds to that body of evidence. To me, this appears as the closest we've seen yet to 
real live actual collusion. Clearly Manafort was trying to collude with Russian agents. And the question is, what did the president know? What did Donald Trump know about this, tra uh, this exchange of information? You know, did the Russians end up using this information in their efforts that took place later in the fall where they tried using the Internet Research Agency and other um, uh, bots and other automated tools on social media to suppress, for example, African-American vote? Was that something that was driven by this campaign data that was turned over to the Russians? We don't know those answers, uh, but uh, this raises a whole host of additional questions that we need to get answered. This may not be a smoking gun, Wolf, but it sure is a wisp. A wisp of what? Of uh, collusion. Um, and, of course, that's been the issue here all along. I, I cannot think of an innocent explanation for why the, the campaign manager for the Trump campaign would share poll, internal polling data with the Russians. Moreover, in my book, I talk about how the Russians uh, tailored their uh, appeals to various groups, either interest groups or on a geographical basis, to meddle with the election and affect its outcome. All right, so that was the craziness that Andrew Weissman fueled. Everybody, of course, taking his musings in court to mean there, we finally had the Trump-Russia collusion smoking gun. Now, what happened basically a month later when the final report of the Mueller team was submitted and it came out shortly after that? Well, they walked back everything that Weissman had said. The Mueller report says that it, quote, did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort's sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election. It also, by the way, quote, could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with it. So basically everything that Andrew Weissman speculated uh, about the polling data saying that this was at the heart of what we're investigating and the heart of what they're investigating is Trump-Russia collusion, all that was walked back in the report. Now, Kalimnik was never interviewed by the Mueller team, which is very, very curious. He was indicted by the Mueller team in a witness tampering charge in Manafort's lobbying case where they accuse him of sending these text messages to some potential witnesses in uh, the case. These people had not been contacted as witnesses yet, but Kalimnik texted them. And after he did that, the Mueller team accused him of trying to tamper by texting potential witnesses. But Kalimnik was never actually interviewed and they never tried to interview him, which he told me in our interview. But before we hear him talk about that, uh, let's hear what he says about the polling data. And he explained to me, as uh, he said before, that the polling data was not sophisticated as was widely said in the media and it was shared for a very simple reason that basically manafort wanted to drum up business in ukraine so he wanted to show that the guy he was working for donald trump was in the race and had a chance of winning and he also was trying to re uh, recover some money from ukrainian clients so that clinic says was the motive for sh for manafort giving him this polling data to share with not even Russians, but Ukrainians. So I was basically giving them the flavor of uh, what was going on, you know, based on uh, you know, what I read in the papers and uh, and basically an open polling data. We did not, we did never discussed anything more detailed than the top lines of, you know, Trump has 40, you know, Hillary has you know, 45. And by the way, it wasn't even just Ukrainians that, Kalimnik shared this polling data with. He even told me that he shared it with U.S. officials. And that's because in a critical piece of information that is radically downplayed by anybody pushing Russiagate conspiracy theories, 
Kalimnik was a regular contact with was in regular contact with U.S. officials at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. The uh, Senate report that came out last August even called him a valuable source for the uh, U.S. Embassy in Kiev, a, a relationship that is re really downplayed because it's not very convenient to this narrative that really Kalimnik is a Russian spy who infiltrated the Trump campaign. Because seemingly, if he's a Russian spy who infiltrated the Trump campaign, then his close proximity to the U.S. Embassy in Kiev would mean that he infiltrated that too. But that's not addressed because it undermines the conspiracy theory. So Kalimnik told me this about his contact with U.S. officials as well. You know, I, uh, I send them to both clients. I send them to journalists I've been communicating with. I think even to the U.S. Embassy personnel. Most of that stuff was sent by on email, yeah. on Davis Manafort email, that uh, later was basically deleted. Uh, okay. I think Mueller seized the, the servers, so, you know, he would have them. Uh, he would have all my communication with pretty much everybody. Now, interestingly enough, the Mueller report even corroborates Klimek's account that he discussed the polling data and the Trump campaign with U.S. officials because the Mueller report references, quote, multiple emails that Kalimnik sent to U.S. associates and press contacts, quote, unquote, in the summer of 2016. And it goes on and says those emails referenced internal polling, described the status of the Trump campaign and Manafort's role in it and assessed Trump's prospects for victory. And if you look at the footnote, you see a list of a series of emails that Kalimnik is sending to a bunch of people, including U.S. nationals, if not U.S. officials. So the Mueller team even obtained these emails that Kalimnik was sending where he's referencing the polling data, and it references them, but curiously, it doesn't show them to us. And I think the reason there is obvious is because it knew who Kalimnik was discussing the polling data with. He knew exactly what the polling data looked like, and he also knew the nature of how all this was discussed. It was not to, for some covert Russian interference campaign. It was just basically to talk about the state of the campaign, which Kalimnik had some proximity to because he was working for Manafort, who was then running Trump's campaign. So then there's the nature of the polling data itself. And this is widely described as sophisticated, sensitive information that Kalimnik got pages and pages of polling data printed out. He says that none of that is true, that basically what he was doing was take, looking at newspapers like with headlines like from a poll like Trump 42, Clinton 41 in a certain state, and then using that. And that's what he told me in this interview. So he never and printed- It was mostly open polling information. It was not different from what uh, one would publish on Real clear, clear Politics or any of that stuff. I would share this information basically saying that, you know, there was one conclusion that I made you know, explain to everybody that the race is not over and, uh, you know, it will be decided at the polls. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the we cannot say that Clinton already won. This is not right. true. Or, uh, you know, Trump has zero chances. That's not true either. You know, there were some outstanding debts, uh, which I uh, was working to get repaid, which, uh, you know, never happened. And uh, there was also, you know, Paul's reputation. I mean, you know, he was very well known to a lot yeah. of people in Kiev and uh, it could generate, you know, some new business. He did not give me any polling. He did not give me any, you know, even one or two words of documents related to the campaign. Uh, so the basis for uh, you know, this whole media frenzy was that apparently, you know, they gave me, you know, 70 or whatever pages of uh, detailed polling information, which didn't happen. 
with 300% can confirm that. I never got a single page of any printed out polling data or uh, campaign documents or anything. Now, Kalimnik has a key corroborating witness, and that is the Mueller report's star cooperating witness named Rick Gates, who is another former aide to Manafort, who was the deputy Trump campaign chair. And he cooperated with the Trump team. And in fact, he's the witness who first told the Mueller team about the polling data. And the Mueller team extensively relied on his testimony to make these assertions about the polling data. Now, the problem is, as Gates told me, the Mueller report cherry picked his testimony and left out the parts or downplayed the parts that undermined the collusion narrative. Gates told this to me in an interview here on Pushback last year and also to Jake Tapper of CNN. I uh, outlined the information to them and I explained exactly what Paul had requested me to give uh, to Constantine in way of data. So if you understand anything about the uh, nuances of, of data and data analytics, uh, all that was exchanged was, and, and be ready for this, old top line data from public polls and some internal polls, but all dated, nothing in real time. And this is part of, the, of what Mueller left out of the report uh, was this information. So it gave them the ability to cherry pick and build a narrative that really was not true because obviously they had predetermined the conclusion and then went looking for the evidence. And this is exactly what the majority of the investigation was about. Is it not possible that they took the internal campaign data that you provided and used it to interfere in the election? Well, first, let me say about the campaign data, and there's been a lot of misinformation uh, over the last three years about that specific data. And just to be clear, and for the first time hearing it from me, that campaign data in, in most cases was dated and it was called top line data. That is simply that it has Trump 50 percent, Clinton 48 percent. There was no specific uh, uh, detailed data about any of those polls. It was a combination of some internal polling on specific states, as well as a lot of public data that was shared. And in most cases, it was sent several days after the fact. Uh, that information was given to Constantine to provide information to people in Ukraine. Uh, I was never led to believe that it was going to anybody other than the two people that yeah. uh, he specified. And I took him at his word for that. So that's how both Rick Gates, the star Mueller witness, and Constant Kalimnik respond to these allegations that Kalimnik was secretly sharing some sensitive polling data with Russia. I've asked the Treasury Department what evidence they have for their claims, and I got no response. And all the only response I've seen in the media from uh, two questions about the evidentiary basis for their claims from Treasury is a no comment. So the best that Treasury has given to support its assertions about the polling data is a no comment. There's been no evidence provided. There was a leak to NBC News from two anonymous officials who said that U.S. officials have developed information that leaves them to believe, quote, believe. Not that they say that they have evidence, but they have evidence that leads them to believe that Kalimnik passed polling data to Russia. Uh, but these sources, as is always the case, quote, did not identify the source or type of intelligence that had been developed, nor did it say, did they say when or how this supposed intelligence was received. So I think the answer is pretty clear here that there is no evidence. And what, what happened here is, 
I think not hard to figure out. The Mueller team found no evidence that the polling data was shared with Russia. The Senate Intelligence Committee found no evidence that the polling data was shared with Russia. But because this polling data thing was so important to the collusion narrative, we saw earlier that clip from Mark Warner and others talking about what a game changer this was. This is the closest thing there is to collusion. I think there has been a behind the scenes effort to try to prop up that narrative in the face of all the evidence that undermines it. And so you can't make that claim if you're the Justice Department or even the intelligence agencies because you have to have some evidentiary basis for it. So I think the fact this came out through Treasury, which is not an intelligence or security service, uh, but a different branch of government, I think someone behind the scenes must have decided it was easy for them to put this out and they wouldn't have to uh, justify it with any evidence. Now, Perhaps they'll be challenged more on this internally from other government bodies, maybe from Congress, we'll see. But the point for now is that there's no evidence at all to support this assertion from the Treasury Department. And we have the evidence that contradicts it, not just Constant Kalimnik, you don't have to take him at his own word if you don't want to, but there's also the Mueller team's star corroborating witness. It's also the fact that the Mueller team has never produced the polling data that Kalimnik shared with his Ukrainian contacts. And I think there's a reason for that, because I think it would show that this was not sophisticated information, but just general stuff that you could get in the media. So that's the polling data. Let's move on to another um, new development from my interview with Kalimnik, where he actually exposes what I think is a very significant error by the Mueller team. So if you go back to the Mueller report, again, unlike the Senate Intelligence Committee and unlike the Treasury Department, they do not call Kalimnik a Russian intelligence officer. They don't call him a Russian spy. Why is that? Because they would have to have some evidence for it, or at least they'd have to claim that they have some, some evidence for it. But they don't. What they do instead is make this vague claim that Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence, which is a very slick way of painting Kalimnik with the brush of Russian espionage without having to substantiate it. Because you can, because what does ties mean? It could mean something serious, like he works hand in glove with Russian intelligence, or it could mean that he's interacted with someone who is either in the Russian intelligence service or has some tie to it of their own. So it's very ambiguous, but it was used for the reason, for the purpose of trying to make Kalimnik into a Russian spy. Now, to justify even this vague assessment that Kalimnik has undefined Russian intelligence ties, the Mueller team puts out the list of evidence. They're called pieces of the uh, office's evidence that they collected to support this assessment that he has ties to Russian intelligence. And it's a pretty underwhelming list. It starts with the fact that Kalimnik worked as a translator at a Soviet military academy uh, back in the uh, years just before the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, this is what Kalimnik says in response to that. So I was basically, it was a military training, you know, for five years, uh, focusing on uh, you know, English and Swedish. Uh, in the normal circumstances, uh, I would actually go and serve in the army, you know, somewhere. Uh, but because the Soviet Union was falling apart uh, and, uh, you know, I was able to get a job as an instructor of Swedish at the university. Uh, so I never served in the, you know, real army. You know, all I did was, you know, teaching Swedish. If that counts as spying, I mean, it'll be very surprising. So after the Mueller report cites the fact that Kalimnik worked or trained as a translator, at a Soviet military school. It then goes on to say that he traveled to the US in 1997 on a Russian diplomatic passport. And it doesn't specify this, but the insinuation there is that 
Kalimnik might have been doing so as a Russian intelligence asset and traveling to the U.S. under diplomatic cover because that's what intelligence assets often do. Russian or U.S., if they go to another country, they'll often go there posing as a diplomat when really they're there to do espionage. So that's the insinuation of Mueller's claim there. They assert that Kalimnik traveled to the U.S. with a Russian diplomatic passport. Well, Kalimnik gave me his passport. He showed it to me. And if that passport is not a fake, which I strongly doubt that it's fake. It looks very real to me. That passport shows that Mueller made a serious error because Kalimnik's visa that he received on the same date that Mueller says he received a visa, a U.S. visa as a Russian diplomat is in fact a regular visa. And Kalimnik's passport is in fact a regular passport. It's issued in the standard red, not in the green color of a Russian diplomatic passport. And it says there, right there on the visa, that this is a regular U.S. visa. And Kalimnik even shared with me some video of him going through his passport. This is my passport, the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. You can see just regular red, not diplomatic passports. Diplomatic should be green in any countries. Got a bunch of visas here, including the US, which I traveled to being on IRI staff. And uh, I cannot imagine IRI giving me a visa. <laughs> Uh, or U.S. Embassy, uh, if I have the diplomatic passport. There's a bunch of other stuff here, just to make sure. So that's a pretty big error. One of the major pieces of evidence that Mueller has to support his claim that Kalimnik has Russian intelligence ties is that Kalimnik came to the U.S. on a Russian diplomatic passport. Kalimnik's passport shows that claim to be false. We'll see if there's any movement on that, if the Justice Department will acknowledge that or not. But regardless, it is very, very significant. And it's just another case of, again, assuming that Kalimnik has not sent me a fake passport, and I really don't think that he did. Uh, it's another case where the evidence always undermines the assertions that are used to advance Russiagate innuendo. Moving on, Kalimnik says that the Mueller team made another really big error about his travel history. And this is when the mother team, uh, when it accused Manafort of lying to them. It also said that on top of the polling data, Manafort also lied to them about meeting with Kalimnik in Madrid in February of 2017. They claim that Kalimnik and Manafort met, met in Madrid in 2017 in February, and they say that Manafort lied to them about that. And that alleged lie was used to secure a ruling from the judge in Manafort's case that he had breached their cooperation agreement, which then um, meant that they did not have to give Manafort a reduced sentence. It also then fueled the suspicion that Manafort, because he was lying, was hiding the secret damn inclusion evidence from Mueller to protect Trump. Well, Kalimnik says that the claim about the Madrid meeting is completely false. What he says was, is that he's never been to Madrid in his life and that he made a travel booking to go to Madrid to meet Manafort, but ultimately didn't go. He canceled the trip. And he says that there's no evidence of any record of him going to Madrid. If there was evidence, he says, Mueller would have produced it, but he doesn't. And he suspects that the only evidence, supposed evidence that Mueller has, is just this flight booking that he made. 
Well, Kalimnik says that the claim that he and Manafort met in Madrid is completely false. He, in fact, says that he's never been to Madrid any time in his life. I've never been to Madrid in my life. We met during the inauguration where I took, uh, you know, basically my client. Uh, I did not attend any of the inauguration events myself, uh, but, you know, I spent some time to meet with Paul and to catch up. Uh, that was our last meeting in person in, in Alexandria. Otherwise, there would have been, again, you know, proof such as, you know, tickets, boarding passes, uh, border uh, crossing records, all that stuff. And I mean, then, it's not rocket science to get it. So when I asked Kalimnik why the mother team might have thought he was in Madrid to meet Manafort, he said that that's probably because he did make a flight booking to go there, but he never went. And he says, accordingly, there is no documentary evidence of him actually going to Madrid. The best the Mueller team would have, he says, is a flight booking that he ultimately canceled. I was thinking about going to Madrid and I discussed it with Paul, uh, but, you know, it made no sense. And, um, you know, ultimately, you know, it was too expensive. So I didn't go there. You know, there has to be like a ticket issued and purchased. And then there has to be a boarding pass. There has to be a border crossing. I mean, EU is pretty... Uh, disciplined place. So then I asked Kalimnik, well, if you didn't go visit Manafort in Madrid, why did Manafort ultimately admit to it? And Kalimnik says that that's because he thinks that Manafort was basically coerced. He was pressured. He was in solitary confinement for a long period while he was jailed by the Mueller team. And he says that Manafort cracked. Now, the report does say that in their first two meetings, Manafort denied meeting with Kalimnik in Madrid. But then all of a sudden on the third meeting, when he's confronted with documentary evidence, the Mueller report says, that's when Manafort cracked and admitted to it. But Kalimnik says that that documentary evidence could only be a flight booking that he made that ultimately was canceled and that Manafort, he thinks, just crumbled under the pressure of coercion by the Mueller team. There is no documentary evidence. I mean, I, uh, I kind of have difficulties uh, to imagine Paul's psychological state when he was, yeah. you know, basically jailed. Yeah. I mean, the guy who spent, you know, a very kind of high level life, you know, jail is a tough place. So I yeah. think, you know, I don't know why he said that, uh, but, you know, there is no documentary evidence. I have no way to independently verify who's right and who's wrong here. But the fact that Kalimnik is challenging this key assertion is significant. And when I asked the Mueller team, when I asked Robert Mueller and Andrew Weissman when I wrote them, do they have any evidence beyond a flight booking by Kalimnik to support their claim that he was in Madrid? They did not respond. So we'll see if anything more comes of that. But that, again, if Kalimnik is right here, that's another key error by the Mueller team because it led to Manafort pleading to, uh, it led to Manafort uh, being accused of breaking his cooperation deal. And that was very significant because, you know, it led to likely to more jail time for him until he was pardoned by Trump. It also meant that, you know, there was this that fueled the suspicion that he was lying to cover up possibly the secret Trump Russia collusion to help Trump. So now let's look at other attempts to keep Kalimnik's role in the collusion storyline alive, because it didn't actually just begin with Treasury and with the Treasury Department in April. It really kicked up last summer in August 2020 when the Senate Intelligence Committee put out a report. And that report declared that Kalimnik is a Russian intelligence officer. Now, most of the evidence for that assessment was redacted, so we couldn't judge it independently. 
The Senate report also acknowledged that its investigative powers were far less intrusive and sweeping than that of the FBI and the Mueller team, which was the one that investigated Kalimnik and could not come up with any evidence that he is actually a Russian spy. So instead went with this vague claim that he has Russian intelligence ties, whatever that means. But this assertion by the Senate Intelligence Committee was, of course, treated as explosive. Is that safe from a counterintelligence perspective? Is it a okay thing for a candidate for president to have as a campaign manager somebody with an ongoing business relationship with an officer of Russian intelligence? And feeding that officer of Russian intelligence polling information from Midwest states and other information that the Russians could use in targeting their misinformation mm -hmm. campaigns to help Donald Trump get elected president. Now, that report, as I reported at the time for Real Clear Investigations, noted that Kalimnik had extensive contacts with U.S. officials at the embassy in Kiev in Ukraine and was in regular contact with them and was even a valuable source. Now, despite acknowledging that, they downplayed the significance of that and called Kalimnik's proximity to the Trump campaign a grave counterintelligence threat, which was interesting because even though he was a regular contact with the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, they didn't call that a grave counterintelligence threat, but they did call his proximity to the Trump campaign a grave counterintelligence threat. Now, at the time, I was curious about their decision to call him a Russian spy when Mueller and the FBI who had investigated all this had not. So I asked the FBI whether they share the assessment that Kalimnik is in fact a Russian intelligence officer. Because again, the FBI has only said that Kalimnik has these unspecified Russian intelligence ties. And the FBI told me that we should defer to the claims of the Mueller report and the claims about Kalimnik in Mueller's indictments. And those indictments in that report only refer to Kalimnik as someone with unspecified Russian intelligence ties which suggests to me that the FBI has not adopted the Senate Intelligence Committee's characterization of Kalimnik as a Russian spy. And if the Senate Intelligence Committee is going off of evidence that it really got from the FBI, because there's no other investigative body that has looked into Kalimnik like the FBI, then on what basis is it declaring to be a Russian intelligence officer? Well, this again, I think goes, goes back to the polling data. I think they needed Kalimnik to basically make the Russian invest investigation look credible. And since Kalimnik is one of the few people in the Trump orbit with a Russian passport, he proved very useful for that. So that is what I think is the basis for the Senate Intelligence Committee declaring him to be a Russian spy. Now, the obvious counter to that from people is that, well, then why did all these Republicans go along with it? My response is that really Mark Warner was the driving force behind that committee. He's a Democrat. Richard Burr was um, a not a very strong overseer of the intelligence community, despite all the abuses that they made during the Russia investigation. The House Intelligence Committee was, and they went after the FBI. And in fact, they discovered a lot of the abuses, including the deceptive Carter Page warrant and the use of the Steele dossier. The Senate Intelligence Committee has for a while now been basically a rubber stamp on the intelligence community. So I think even from the Republicans, there was a huge reluctance there or disinterest in actually subjecting the intelligence community and its claims to any serious oversight. And now we fast forward to February when the FBI puts out an alert about Constantin Kalimnik. 
uh, offering a, a ransom for his arrest. And this is curious for many reasons. So first of all, you'd think that after the Senate Intelligence Committee called Klimnik a Russian spy, that if the FBI agreed that now on this formal document, public document, they'd call him a Russian spy. But they don't. All they say again is exactly as Mueller said four years ago, which is that Klimnik has these unspecified ties to Russian intelligence. So that says to me that the FBI still does not share the Senate Intelligence, Commit the Senate Intelligence Committee's assessment of Klimnik as a Russian spy. Now, the reward was also interesting because they offered a $250,000 bounty for Kalimnik's arrest. That is more than double the bounty that is being offered right now for most members on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list, including like six alleged murderers. So why are they all of a sudden going after Kalimnik now? They're not going after him on any kind of new case involving Russia collusion. They're going after him on that Manafort lobbying case, which is done now. It was, you know, it there was there was a trial in one uh, court which Manafort was convicted of, and then uh, the other case also uh, ended in a in a Manafort receiving a sentence because he opted not to go to trial, and then Trump pardoned him at the end of his presidency. But now, in a witness tampering charge tied to that case, where Klinik is accused of sending some text messages to some potential witnesses, all of a sudden now there's a $250,000 reward for his head. I've never heard of the FBI putting out an alert, uh, a bounty for someone wanted in a lowly witness tampering case related to an obscure uh, lobbying and uh, tax charge. And I've never heard of such a large bounty for uh, a suspect in that case, especially dwarfing, you know, most wanted fugitives wanted for murder. So this is what Kalimnik had to say about that. The, there was a newspaper in Guardian uh, saying that this group actually lobbied in the United States. And I knew that was bullshit uh, at that time. Uh, so I you know, wrote to Paul uh, asking, you know, what the hell are they talking about? And he says, you know, it was mostly European thing. And, uh, you know, uh, I've been trying to reach both Alan and uh, Eckert uh, to tell them about my position. And uh, they have not been responding. Uh, can you can you give them a call? And I have been you know communicating with them all the time before on you know managing this European program. So I you know called them. Uh, um, they were not uh, around. So I sent like uh, two texts, two text messages to each of them, saying that Paul is trying to reach you uh, about this Guardian uh, piece. And that was it. I so had no idea they were witnesses. <laughs> I had no idea I was not supposed or allowed to talk to them. And honestly, I had no idea if I was doing something illegal. I mean, I have been doing this for, you know, for the previous, you know, three or four years, you know, basically finding them at Paul's request. And if I can add what I think is going on here, I think this alert for the from the FBI for Kalimnik is the same, has the same motive as this Treasury Department press release about him. People behind the scenes who are wedded to the Russiagate narrative need to find a way to make it look credible. So all of a sudden, after this witness tampering case is dormant for a long time, the Biden administration comes into office and someone there with some influence manages to convince the FBI to put out a $250,000 bounty for Kalimnik. Again, not for anything to do with Russia or collusion, but on witness tampering in a lobbying case over some text messages that are, if you look at them, they're very, very benign. It's basically him trying to get in touch with some people who they worked with before and trying to talk to them about the nature of their lobbying work, whether it was 
just in Ukraine or whether it was also in the U.S. Even if Klimnik is guilty of that, is, is that worth a quarter of a million dollar bounty? I don't know. Uh, people should judge for their own. But it's to me, there's a political motive here. And speaking of which, I think there's also a political motive in how Kalimnik was talked about by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence when they put out in March this report where they accused Kalimnik of tampering in the 2020 election and having all these associations with Ukrainians who they also assessed to be secret Russian assets as well. Now, what's funny is the this intelligence community assessment, it does not call Kalimnik a Russian spy a Russian intelligence officer, because again, that would require them to claim that they have some evidence for that. What they say is they call him a Russian influence agent, which has no formal term. There's no formal role, there's no formal role inside Russia, that I know of at least, for a Russian influence agent. So what does that mean? I think what this is is a political term from the people who wrote it, trying to smear Kalimnik and insinuate that he has some nefarious role for Russia without having to provide any formal evidentiary basis for it. And regardless, Kalimnik calls all these assertions about him in this report ludicrous and says that there's no evidence for it. I mean, I honestly have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, also, uh, I mean, the, there is this other guy who is mentioned, uh, Andrei Darkach. Yeah. I have never met him in my life. I mean, I don't know. Uh, why or on what basis they're uh, making claims that he has any relationship to me or to Russia or, uh, you know, or that he was trying to attack Biden. I've had zero meetings with anybody related to the Trump campaign. In fact, I have tried to do my best, you know, understanding that I got into this mess to stay as far as possible from, uh, you know, any U.S. politics. Another reason why I think that Klimek might have been targeted is because if you read the Senate Intelligence Committee report and the Mueller report, they try to make an issue out of the fact that he discussed with Manafort and others a peace plan for Ukraine. And what I think hawks in Congress and in the national security state are trying to do is trying to basically stigmatize this idea of making peace in Ukraine. Because the reason there's a war right now in Ukraine that's ongoing is because the U.S. backed a coup in 2014, the Maidan coup, that overthrew the client of Manafort and Kalimnik, Yanukovych, and that has set off an ongoing proxy war in the Donbas. And Kalimnik was involved in some vague discussions, he says, about trying to resolve that. It didn't go very far, and there's nothing very detailed. And the Mueller report and the Senate Intelligence report suggest that there was something nefarious going on. So I think that trying to paint him as a Russian agent is a basically a way for people who want a proxy war in Ukraine who want to expand NATO to Ukraine's, to Russia's borders in Ukraine, I think this is an attempt by them to basically stigmatize any attempt to resolve the crisis and to make peace. This is what Kalimnik told me about that. There was basically a general, a very general discussion about how to approach uh, the peace process. And Paul said, look, I mean, there is no role for Yanukovych. I don't see it, you know, maybe many years down the road, but I just don't see that happening. And, uh, you know, my advice to our friends in the opposition bloc in Kiev is to uh, basically start communicating with the civic society uh, using their business ties, using their uh, you know economic ties with, with the region and uh, show them they're not traitors. They have not abandoned uh, the region and the region still remains Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, none of that stuff happened. Uh, 
but you know, I think I had similar discussions with people at the State Department. And again, you know, I said here are the options, and um, you know, the alternative is a war, uh, mm-hmm. which will devastate Ukraine's economy, which will uh, distract resources, and which will alienate people. Uh, and the you know the consequences will be very bad. So if you have to choose between the bad and the worst. I mean, the absolute the worst is continuation of that conflict, which is happening, you know, until now. Now, you would think that even though Kalimnik's name fills dozens of pages of the Mueller and Senate Intelligence Committee reports, and he's now the subject of a quarter of a million dollar bounty uh, from the FBI, you'd think that this critical figure in Russiagate, who we're now told is the key, the linchpin for collusion, you'd think that somebody from the U.S. government would have tried to contact him to investigate all these explosive all these explosive allegations and insinuations. But Kalimnik says that not a single U.S. government investigator official has ever tried to contact him about any of these allegations. So that you understand, I mean, they never reached out to me. I mean, I never had a single contact with FBI or any government official for their last, I mean, basically since, uh, since charges were brought to poll. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever tried to talk to me because they know the truth and uh, you know they they understood them well that you know I'll tell them what I'm telling you. You know I have not been uh, hiding. Uh, you know I don't want to go to the U.S. Uh, to spend everything I have to uh, you know try to spend myself in a you know highly politicized environment, uh, which uh, you know I just basically you know frankly speaking lost trust to the fairness of the, you know, of the judicial process in the United States. So that is Konstantin Klimnik in his own words. Again, you don't have to take him at face value, but when you consider what he's saying and you compare it to the complete absence of evidence for anything that he is accused of, and the fact that he has just given us new evidence that undermines a very critical Mueller claim about him, to me, it's yet one more case where explosive Russiagate claims are made. Everyone celebrates that finally there's a smoking gun. But then when countervailing information comes out, that simply gets ignored. And so far, despite the fact that Klimnik is this central figure in the Russiagate saga, we saw that, you know, as he talked about, no U.S. government investigator from the Senate Intelligence Committee, from the Mueller team, the FBI, or any other intelligence or security agency has tried to contact him. And there's not much media interest in really reporting the story critically. Amazingly, after the Treasury Department press release came out, the New York Times put out a story where they ele- they declared that the Senate, that the Treasury press release plus the Senate report confirm their own prior reporting that there was a series of contacts between the Trump campaign and senior Russian intelligence officials. This is a story that came out by the Times in February 2017. It was highly dubious. Jim Comey, the head of the FBI, even publicly declared that it was false. But still, the Times has refused to retract it. And now they're saying that this one sentence of a Treasury Department press release confirms their reporting. What I think this story confirms is that Russiagate reporting was a farce and that people like Konstantin Kalimnik have been used and exploited to advance a very dangerous and deceptive narrative. And this interview and the evidence that he provided to me is more evidence of that.
and it's just another chapter in this ongoing Russiagate disinformation campaign against the U.S. public. For all the talk about Russian influence campaigns, fooling Americans into uh, sowing discord and uh, going out in the streets to fight each other and to electing Donald Trump, not voting for Hillary Clinton. The reality, the real influence campaign is a Russiagate disinformation campaign against the American people. And in my opinion, the exploitation of Konstantin Kalimnik is the latest case of that.